Hello and welcome to How We Got Here, a podcast between FKG Consulting and Nondoc Media. I'm Trace Savage, the editor-in-chief and co-owner of Nondoc Media, and I'm here for episode 11 of How We Got Here with Brian Freed from FKG Consulting. Brian, it's been a minute since we sat down together. It is. Good to be back. Do you have a good summer vacation time-ish? Uh, I, I have had a couple of those. Just got back from Colorado in the mountains, fishing and hiking and all that fun stuff. So happy to be back in the swing of things. Good, good. And we are here with a guest. We've got um, fewer voices on than, than sometimes, so maybe we'll get to hear more from uh, uh, you and, and our guest. Bill Shepard with Shepard Research and Poll. Uh, is here. Bill, how are you doing? Thanks. Thanks for having me. Good. Um, we, we're pleased to have you. You uh, know more numbers than, than, well, at least than I do. Brian walks in here with numbers. You don't even have any notes this time. What's going on? You you expected Bill to bring, here's the, that's the. <laughs> this is this is what I learned when you're, when you're on a podcast with a numbers guy is why bring the numbers when he's going to have all the numbers. <laughs> I like it. Um, well, we're going to jump right into it and talk about the upcoming runoff primary elections august 28th that's a tuesday Uh, it'll be about a week after this podcast posts and oklahoma has a lot on the ballot especially if you're a republican Uh, after the june 26th primary that saw record turnout spurred in in large part by the medical marijuana question which we've talked about in other podcasts uh there there were a few few firm decisions actually made Um, on the democratic side you had drew edmondson win the Democratic nomination for governor, but on the Republican side, uh, you had former Oklahoma City Mayor Mick Cornett and Tulsa businessman Kevin Stitt make it to this runoff. They've been uh, going around the state trying to turn out their base, uh, fire people up, win some some voters that maybe supported Todd Lamb uh, and Gary Jones and Gary Richardson and Dan Fisher and, and those types of candidates who are no longer in it. Uh, but now things have gotten a little testy, and Bill, you've got some some numbers from uh, the last couple, three weeks uh, that kind of tell a story, and I'll let you lead us into talking about the GOP gubernatorial runoff. Well, one of the things is just if we go back to the primary, I think it's worth noting that Kevin Stitt started in the single digits, and a lot of people uh, didn't think that he would even make uh, second place. I mean, I don't even think anybody ever thought that the sitting lieutenant governor would not make the runoff. Uh, but um, this, I, I think, shows, and even the, the polling, for example, you know, still showed uh, Todd Lamb at least in the top two closing. Uh, what this says to me as a pollster is, is that people are making their decisions a lot later. And a lot of campaigns, I think, are starting a lot later. And I don't know if the two are correlating, Brian, if that they're starting later, so people are making their decisions later. But I was remarking someone the other day, you know, most candidates were like, you got to be in by Labor Day of the year before, or you're not going to be able to, to, to perform well. Now, literally, you can get in on sign-up day, like getting a drumming, and become a major candidate within a couple of weeks. So I think, you know, just the whole concept of campaigning has changed, and I think that it's having a adverse impact on my, what I do and what I provide, uh, it's, it's people are less engaged over that period of time, and they're making their decision literally sometimes the, the weekend before. Right. Yeah. I, I, oh, I think that, that it is interesting. You know, I think what Kevin Stitt got into this race, um, when, do, when did Kevin Stitt get into this race? It was certainly uh, 
first of the year, somewhere around there, turn of the first of the year, that we yeah. heard rumblings that, that yeah. he might be getting into the race. So I think it backs up your point. I got a question for Bill. Uh, the number of runoffs that we have this year, is that normal, abnormal? No. no, it's definitely abnormal. It's not something that I think we've seen before. I'm not a political historian, so I really don't know how it fits in the context of what we've had in the past. Um, but I can tell you that I think that the uh, having medical marijuana on the ballot, I think it's everybody can figure that out that it had an ad adverse impact. But let me just tell you about the Republican race for corporation commissioner. I mean, you had a guy, Harold Spradling, didn't really campaign, didn't have a lot of money, went to a, a few events, that's about it. He got one in five votes in the primary. I mean, Harold Spradling would have been a single digit candidate in under any under, under, uh, other election. And so why then is he getting double digits, which is then forcing some of these, all of these runoffs that we're saying, which is really the single digit candidate got double digits. And we know from statistics that if the third or more candidates get 14% of the vote or more, it forces a runoff about 95% of the time. And so that's what's happened. So that being said, I think that uh, we have to ask us, well, why? Well, I think there were a lot of people who were new to the process they may be Trump voters. They may be just solely to vote for medical marijuana, and then they went back to their cave. And, and I think that there may be a lot of people that voted and said, well, I'm not voting for the, the, the head guy or the, the, the front runner. I'm going to vote for, you know, uh, one of the other candidates. And I think that's what happened. I think that's one of the reasons why we have so many runoffs that we're looking at that now. Right. Can you hotbox a cave? Is that possible? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but I so, say that I say that in the aspect <laughs> that I think a lot of people turned out who had never ever voted ever. Right. right. It's sort of a metaphorical, metaphorical uh, not, in the, not in the political realm. Right. There we right. go. So I, I joke with that. Uh, you mentioned that a lot of people may be new to the process. Bill, you're you're not new to the process. Um, give us just a, a brief background of yourself, how you got into polling, right. and and all that. Well, um, I, I got my start working in Republican politics. I was putting up signs for uh, Tim Leonard when he ran for lieutenant governor. What uh, year was this? this? This was back in the 80s when I was still uh, a young kid. I'm trying to think of a, 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 a simile for my existence. I was not even a kid yet, depending yeah. on what year that was. Yeah. But what's interesting about that story is, is that I can remember saying, hey, let's take signs and go to McAllister and Durant and Poto. And they went, oh. We don't go down there. Republicans don't go down there. Now Republicans have, I think, every House or Senate seat down there, you know, practically. Right. I mean, it shows you how much the state has changed over that period of time. I was looking on your, your website, and I said something about how about 40 or 45 percent of Republican voters live in rural Oklahoma. Right. In interesting. I've been talking about that now for the better part of a year, year and a half, and I still don't think that people are quite woken up to it. Look, the Republican Party 20, 30 years ago was an urban party. It was Oklahoma City, a little bit of Tulsa, Bartlesville, and basically everything between Bartlesville and, right. and Oklahoma City. That's right. And they, the saying used to be that to win a Republican primary, all you had to do was be good at either end of the Turner, which was the Turner Turnpike. Well, now when we do an analysis and look at where Republican registration has grown, which is predominantly in the rural areas, and you take a look at where now the Republican primary voter is, which is not necessarily in Oklahoma City and Tulsa, we find that as much as 40 to 45% of the Republican primary voter is in a non-urban area. And so that tells you, I mean, th think of it in the context of this. 
And there is a rival between Oklahoma City and Tulsa, and people need to understand that. It's inherent. I mean, we don't talk about it necessarily openly, but it's there. I mean, uh, uh, I'll give you an example. Mick Cornett, and I have to tip my hat to him, as a former Oklahoma City mayor, he's done better in some rural areas surrounding Oklahoma City than any former Oklahoma City mayor has done. Uh, I mean, he beat uh, Todd Lamb in Garfield County by 73 votes. Now, that county, by the way, is in the Oklahoma City viewing area, so that makes a lot of sense. But go and ahead. he well, and he was a sportscaster in the Oklahoma City viewing area too. We had we had Joe Dorman. If you go back to episode four or five of this podcast, he was talking about Joe from Rush Springs, and he had Mick Cornett come down. He invited all the candidates, but but um, Cornett was the only one who came down for the Rush Springs Watermelon Festival and parade, and uh, he told his mom who's, you know, 80 years old or so, that, that Mick Cornett was coming down. And she said, oh, he, isn't he the sportscaster? Mm-hmm. You know, even though he'd been mayor for, yep. for you know, a dozen years at that point. So. Yeah, and Name ID is really helping him a lot in those areas. But the rural areas really do not want to vote for an Oklahoma City mayor. If that was so, Kirk Humphreys would be a U.S. senator today, for example, in recent political history. And so that being said, if you look at those that have won statewide office, I mean, Tom Coburn was from Muskogee. Don Nichols was from Ponca City. uh, Brad Henry was from Shawnee. The rural candidate was in many cases the compromise candidate between Oklahoma City and Tulsa voters. And that's the reason why we see a lot more success there. However, now we've got an Oklahoma City and running against a Tulsa. And now the rural areas where the growth of the Republican primary voter has been so large is really going to decide this election. Who do you think, Bill, uh, uh, benefited the mo- of, of the candidates uh, running for governor in the primary? Who do you think benefited the most from 788 uh, and the turnout on 788? Uh, gosh, that, you know, I don't know. I mean, both candidates really tried to avoid wanting to talk about it. I don't think anybody really liked the idea of having it on the primary ballot. Um, I think it was a mistake for Murray Fallon to put it on the primary ballot. I mean, I'm only saying that from the context of being a pollster who has to use art and science to determine what the electorate will be on election day. And when you start throwing medical marijuana on a ballot, it messes with my the gauges on my dashboard. And so that's the reason why I say I would have preferred it not to be there. Uh, but um, I think it's hard to say. I think that um, there was a lot more, uh, you know, I think we knew it was gonna be a runoff just because of the number of candidates. But I think that there were a lot of votes that went to the non-traditional candidate in, in, the, in that race as opposed to maybe the front runner. And I think that Kevin may have benefited from that because he's the outsider and he's really made himself that. And in this age of Trump, that seems to be uh, a very winning decision. In fact, it again, but I say the negative of that is that here's millionaires trying to win political elections. You know, can I pick off that seat, you know? And so... Trump did it. Maybe I can do it, too. And so we see a lot of those. It's interesting. You spoke of how you can. I looked it up, by the way. Kevin Stitt announced in mid-July of 2017. Uh, We may not have noticed, uh, but he did. And um, but still, it's, you know, um, that that's less than a year ahead of the runoff. I mean, of the primary. Um, So, you know, I, I think it's an interesting situation where you have more and more big-moneyed, self-financing candidates coming in. Um, and this is across 
many elections here in Oklahoma this cycle. But um, Stid himself has referred to, he, he referred to this the other day at a press gaggle he called at H&H Gun Range. Um, he referred to how he's investing in the campaign for, his, uh, for, for the public, for you. So every dollar you invest, I invest a dollar along with you. And that's a pretty good way to couch, hey, I'm rich as hell and I've got the ability to do this, right? I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good strategy. Um, Cornette hasn't had exactly that luxury of self-financing, but he does have other wealthy people who um, are not only financing his campaign, uh, but have created uh, an independent expenditure uh, to favor him, Oklahoma Values uh, being one of the main ones. The Foundation for Economic Prosperity has also, um, I think that's what it's called, has also uh, supported him. So that's kind of an interesting element, and things have gotten a little dirty. Kevin Stitt says Mick Cornette is in favor of sanctuary cities. That's a bunch of bullshit. Bullshit! Mick was mayor of Oklahoma City and it's never been a sanctuary city. The police chief agrees. At Kevin Stitt, his company was named one of the 15 shadiest mortgage lenders in the entire country. Who do you believe? The chief of police? Or old Bullstitt? That's just Bullstitt. Well, which is, you know, which is pretty interesting. We went through a primary with essentially no negative uh, attack ads on any of the gubernatorial candidates and here we finally and within the last week have seen some negative attack ads which uh, sure are dirty but more the norm than what you're used to it's, it feels like this is later than usual for these type of attacks yeah I think that's a bunch of bull stit if you ask me <laughs> uh, uh, you know I think that's the that's the new ad. You just heard it in the drop before Brian's uh, <laughs> statement there. That's the new ad from Mick Cornette uh, that is is coming uh, on airwaves and has got some adorable senior citizens dropping a somewhat uh, uh, catchy term of bullstit to uh, claim that, that Stitt's own attacks on Cornette are lies. Mayor Cornette didn't back Donald Trump for president. Are you going to endorse Donald Trump? I have not endorsed Donald Trump. Wouldn't you normally, don't you normally endorse the... Yeah, I, I would, I, normally I have. Mayor Cornette's not just a never-Trumper. Cornette defended sanctuary cities and said building President Trump's border wall, quote, ain't going to get us anywhere. He actually said that. Mayor Cornette, wrong on Trump, wrong on immigration. Uh, Stitt's campaign came out negatively. I thought it was interesting that they, when they had this press gaggle at the gun range, uh, I asked him, what, what would be your criticism of, of Mayor Cornette? And he said, well, well I'm not going to, I'll let other people criticize. And then, you know, immediately thereafter, there's, um, you know, uh, ads on TV criticizing Cornette. And they basically said that he didn't vote for Trump or didn't support Trump, didn't endorse him. And that he supported sanctuary cities uh, and made the implication that Oklahoma City is a sanctuary city. Legally, it's not, but there is, I've heard it, as, as sort of an infamous radio spot that Cornette, something on radio he had said, uh, you know, about sanctuary cities that, that might conceivably come back to haunt him in a, in a tough GOP race uh, like this. So, so long story short, the new That's Bullstit ad is Cornette's way of, of saying, uh, Kevin Stitt's criticisms are BS. And I'm curious, because uh, I've talked to some people and I have some thoughts on this. 
but how do you feel like that ad played to the electorate out there? Well, you know, I think we're going to find out. If, if, if Mick Cornette did not focus group that and that, that saying of that off, off of the word, you know, the real word. Right. We can I, say it on here. Oh, we can? Yeah. I didn't know. You can say bullshit. Oh, okay. Okay, good. Well, <laughs> bullshit. Uh, it, there we go. I just did. I said it. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, the I, I think if he didn't message, if he didn't test that, uh, then I think that that's pretty foolish because, you know, Republican voters, I think, may respond very negatively to that. And then at the same time, it's just creative enough that then p- p- portrays Kevin Stitt as a negative campaigner, that it might actually be successful. But man, I'm telling you, if there was ever a case for testing something before you go with it, that's it right there. Oh yeah, because it could be seen as, as not really appropriate, especially in your 40 to 45% of Republican voters who are conservative in a rural setting, uh, church twice a week, that kind yeah, of I mean, thing. The runoff profile for Republicans is 70 percent of everybody's over the age of 55 okay so on on the conservative meter it's almost off the charts right to win a republican runoff the guy furthers to the right typically wins right so what does that tell you that means that those people may be more sensitive to the use of that word or that type of of of, of campaign and that's what i'm saying is if he didn't test it uh, he's just uh, rolling the dice, really. Well, and I, I think it's that's interesting because my initial reaction was, "What's well, funny and clever, and you know, attention getting, and all those type of things." Right. Uh, but then subsequent conversations with with multiple people and some people in the rural areas, I've gotten more of that sentiment that uh, it didn't maybe go over so well with some of those type of voters, and so we'll, we'll find out on election day. But I, I I do think it's an interesting dynamic to think about anecdotally uh, in another life that I lead simultaneously here I I traveled the state of Oklahoma to teach a class called mental health first aid and it's a it's basically mental health for uh, or CPR for mental health issues and um, I have I, I tell a lot of stock jokes it's an eight-hour class so I have to try to be funny while talking about suicide prevention and those sorts of things and I, I tell a story about a conversation I had with dr. Drew Pinsky um, talking about how young people have good bullshit detectors. And in Oklahoma City and Tulsa and Norman and places like that that I've taught the class, that line goes over very well. And quickly after I sort of added that to my repertoire, I got some feedback when I was in rural Oklahoma on two different occasions. And it was you know, only a couple people both times, but said, hey, you know, I, I liked everything you did, but I found it inappropriate when you said that word. And so I, if I'm in rural Oklahoma, I'll say BS, right? In my in the same telling of the same joke. So I think you know, from my thought, I had I had a similar thought was I think that's hilarious, but I'm probably not the average Republican right, uh, right. runoff voter. Right. Um, yeah. So so let's talk numbers. Uh, Bill, you had uh, some polls in the field. Um, I guess maybe it was one big poll, and then you broke it out on your website. You can go right. to SoonerPoll.com and see i'll link to some of these in our posting of it on non-doc of this podcast uh but you you broke that up into different ways in your poll which i think was done at the very end of july it was uh you showed uh cornet and stitt um being basically you know essentially tied at 37 and a half percent um among the sample of 483 republicans that's right in 18 years i've never had two candidates that literally landed on the same number that was 181 votes for Mick Cornett and 181 votes for Kevin Stitt. 
and 121 undecided. So it was kind of interesting. But what I think is most telling, because most people look at that and say, oh, well, it's tied, so really neither has the advantage. I think if you dig a little deeper into the poll and you start looking at the geographical breakdown of where everybody is, you'll notice that Mick Cornett in the rural areas is getting just 30% of the vote and Kevin Stitt is getting 41%. Now, there's still 28% undecided. It's the most undecided of all three areas, Oklahoma City, Tulsa, rest of state. But my thinking is, is, is that if the rural voters break at the same proportion that they have already decided, then Kevin Stitt will probably win this thing. Now, I've seen two other partisan polls that have come out since that show Mick, uh, Kevin Stitt up as much as 10 points. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them I thought was very generous to Mick, uh, Kevin Stitt. In the first congressional district, they weighted that at 24% and Oklahoma City at 19 So, you know, that's uh, at least helping uh, Kevin Stitt there a little bit because all the congressional districts are about 20% each. And so, but, you know, that's what partisan polls do. My poll is designed to say we're the only state's independent, nonpartisan polling firm, and we just care about being accurate. That's all we care about. Now, isn't isn't Tulsa supposed to have, I mean, don't we think that Tulsa is going to have a little bit higher turnout because of uh, legislative races and then also the first condition congressional district has a Republican runoff? I think there's an argument to be made for uh, absolutely. that. Absolutely. Uh, uh, I think the probably what Bill would tell you is the the hardest thing, especially coming off of the primary when 788 was on the ballot, is what's turnout going to look like in in a in a runoff? Uh, you're always trying to figure out what turnout right. is going to be. Right. But do do we do we go back to a, a typical model, or right. or are, is there going to be some residual effects of of uh, 788 and right. a teacher walkout and all those type of things? Right. Um, I I think that uh, keep in mind in the primary we had 43 percent of registered voters vote. In prior runoff elections with very little on the ballot, we've had as little as 17 percent. At this point, my model for turnout is probably in the low 30s, although that may be shooting a little high. It may be more like 25 to 28 percent. But at this point, I'm, I'm guessing at about 31, 32 percent. And so it that is still big. Right. Uh, in fact, there are some primaries that have not had that much turnout before. But I think what will be different between the runoff and the primary is the profile. If you looked at the profile of the primary voter uh, by their age, their gender, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, their party break, their their, their party affiliation, uh, you'd find that um, it's a lot different than what's going to turn out for the runoff. Meaning that I think it'll be a more traditional primary runoff to primary voter, uh, but I just think there'll be more of them. Right. Right. Yeah. So uh, on primary election night on the governor's Republican primary, roughly, uh, and you guys can correct me, roughly Mick Cornett got about 31 percent of the vote. 27. Uh, 27. Mm-hmm. And Cornett, I mean, uh, Stitt and Lamb were at about what? 20, 24, 23. 24, 24 20, 20. I think 20. somebody was 24.1. I remember right. that. I think that's right. what right. I think that's what Stitt Walked in right. with 17% so, so, of statistics are made up on the spot. Other, uh, I know 85%. No, it's 17% is made up. No, okay, but my question is coming out of that primary, uh, when you polled it, if you were both of these candidates, if you're Cornette 
Are you happy with a tie? I mean, no, everybody wants to have a huge lead, realistically. Mm-hmm. Were you, are you happy with a tie? If you're stit, are you, are you happy? Which candidate do you believe uh, felt better about the results of your poll? Uh, I, I, I think that Stitt would probably because of one, we just talked about additional turnout in Tulsa because of the first district race, uh, congressional race, and because he's doing better in the rural areas. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, they, they want an outsider. They don't want an insider. And as much as Mick Cornett wants to say, I'm, look, I've never been in a state office. I've, I, I am an outsider, too. It's hard for him to do that when he keeps in debates relying back upon his experience as being former Oklahoma City mayor. And so, um, you know, I will tell you that in other polling, we've asked people, you know, do you do you prefer a person new to politics and outside? The way we say that is a person that's an outsider and new to politics, which I think needs to be married together or a person with prior political office experience. And they pick an outsider two to one. So that's where the mentality for Oklahomans is. And I think that's, again, advantage to it. Let's talk real briefly because we got a lot of other things to get to. You wanted to, to look at your matchups between uh, hypothetically between Stitt and Drew Edmondson, the Democratic nominee, that's right. and uh, Cornette and, and Drew Edmondson. Right. And that's an interesting, to go off what you just said, it's an interesting examination because while Stitt is an outsider truly from politics, Edmondson's campaign is trying to um, edit that narrative a little bit to fit their concept, which is an outsider right now would be a Democrat in leadership <laughs> right. in, in uh, Oklahoma politics. So right. he's trying to make that claim that, hey, I'm an outsider. The last 10 years of frustration that you guys have had, right. predominantly Republicans' fault. Well, let's first start with just an analysis of the congressional generic ballot, because in other states, and this is where Oklahoma is different than other states, in other states, if there's a Republican in the White House, then they're more likely to vote Democrat. If there's a Democrat in the White House, they're more likely to vote Republican, and we've seen this in midterm elections. Oklahoma is different. It doesn't matter whether Barack Obama is in the White House or Donald Trump is in the White House. I have a 25-point lead among Republicans in a a generic congressional ballot, meaning ask, are you going to vote for the Republican or the Democrat for Congress uh, in November? Now, I think that's a high watermark for Republicans, okay? Now, compare that to how we're looking at matchups between Kevin Stitt and Drew Edmondson and Mick Cornette and Drew Edmondson. And what we find is is that 25-point spread drops to as little as five points. Sometimes, and I found Kevin Stitt and Drew Edmondson literally statistically tied. So what does that say? That says that I think Oklahomans say, I'm still wanting to send a Republican to Washington, D.C., but I'm beginning to question whether Republicans are capable of running state government. And I think that's where we find ourselves. I think that this is the precursor for looking at the general election, which I think will be a much closer race in a red state. Perhaps any of any red state, this will be one of the closest races. I've heard it said jokingly that, um, you know, depending on who comes out of there, it really affects other things. Let's go briefly, we'll skip down the ballot to some congressional stuff. Um, in Oklahoma City, there is not a uh, fifth district Republican runoff. There is a Democrat one. Uh, speak on that. Kendra Horn is widely favored over Tom Guild. But it was said to me that uh, if if that Kendra Horn, if she were doing anything right now, should probably be out knocking doors for Kevin Stitt. The idea <laughs> being that if Mick Cornett is on the ballot in November, it becomes much harder for a Democrat in CD5 uh, to challenge Steve Russell. But 
uh, if the if the cornet push wasn't there, maybe it would be easier for. Her. But Tulsa is really where things are interesting on the Republican side. There's both a CD1 Democrat primary between uh, Amanda Douglas and Tim Gilpin, and then on the Republican side uh, between Tim Harris and Kevin Hearn. Tim Her- uh, Kevin Hearn is the I think I called him the Cheeseburger King uh, when we had a, a previous podcast. He owns several McDonald's franchises. Um, I haven't met him. I, I, I mean that with all due fun. Uh, and then Tim Harris, who was recently interviewed shirtless in his front yard by Paul Tay on Facebook. I don't. Did either of you gentlemen see that? I did, yes. It, it, in his it, backyard. Oh, is his backyard? Yeah, he was cleaning his pool at just the time. Paul uh, Tay coming through the bushes right at you. Just That's, that's a... <laughs> a frightening concept, but there's but there's Tim Harris dressed in only swim trunks and a mustache and a and like a, a huge hat banana hat yeah like yeah. so he um, so anyway but so Harris and Hearn are uh, in a in a pretty tight battle for this but you have some polling and have recently gotten yourself in some in some real drama in some real drama as a result yeah. of this so tell us what your polling says and then what right. the drama is give us this in just a couple minutes so at the end of july we did a poll on that race and we found that uh, uh tim harris was leading by 11 points now keep in mind he won the primary okay so i think it's a natural conclusion to say that tim harris would be leading as we go into the runoff and we found him by 11 points he led in some very key demographics among those 55 and older among those in tulsa county and even broken arrow keep in mind that um, nathan dom a state senator from broken arrow and andy coleman from bartlesville were in the race and combined they got 40 percent of the vote so there was still a lot of vote out there to get well in broken arrow we found that uh, Tim Harris's lead went to as much as 16 points. So he had a much bigger lead even among the, uh, those uh, within areas that were won by those that did not, those candidates that didn't make the prime, uh, the runoff. So um, then after my poll came out about two weeks later, Kevin Hearn's campaign put out a poll that said that he was up by 16 points and they provided none of the minimum disclosure requirements of any of them at the poll. They didn't they didn't give us an instrument or a survey. They didn't tell us what the demographics were. I have no idea how he balanced the poll or, or weighted it to the population at large. They literally just put out a one pager with about five bullets on it about how well Kevin Hearn was doing. And so I went on a radio program in Tulsa and I said, look, with, with Sooner Poll, we have some of the highest transparency uh, anywhere in the industry. Not only do we meet the minimum disclosure requirements, but oftentimes we exceed that by releasing rate calculations, call disposition reports, and uh, even waiting tables, which is is basically unheard of as weight of providing that kind of data. So it it angered me a little bit. Now, Meebo said, well, now, why did you get angry at that one, but you didn't get angry at like the polls that came out showing Kevin step by 10? And I've said, look, that was because I saw that there was a way that you could start off in a dead heat and then one candidate is picking up steam and and we've discussed as to why that's probably happening. But up here, when you poll and one candidate is up by 11 and then the other's up by 16 within 10 days, that you you understand it would take a Ralph Shorty event in which to be able to swing an election 27 points in the opposite direction. My right. least favorite hashtag, Ralph Shorty event. R- Ralph Shorty event, right. So so I, I challenged the poll because I said, look, at least meet the minimum disclosure requirements. Well, they still have not done that to this day. So I went on a radio program, and he said, hey, how confident are you in these? And I said, look, I'm so confident 
that I'd bet $5,000 that I'd give to a charity of, of Kevin Hearn's choice um, that my poll is more accurate than his. Well, the Tulsa World picked it up, wrote about it, and then I got this mysterious email basically quoting statute 21181 that says that it is a misdemeanor to make, offer, or accept a bet or wager on the outcome of a political election. Now, I wasn't trying to commit a crime. I think many people in just passing say, you know, ah, I bet uh, I bet you 100 bucks Donald Trump doesn't get reelected. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's happened. Does the statute specify money or can we wager like, you know, cheese at crackers or, well, uh, you, you know, know, like a new hat? Like, I'll buy you a new hat if yep. Rex Lawhorn is governor. You know? According to the statute, the definition for a bet or wager is anytime someone wins something or loses something. So even me losing and giving money to the charity of Kevin Hearn's choice would have then not met that definition. Anyway, well, maybe it's something we need to change, Brian, yeah, uh, quite frankly. I think we can see if we can get arrested by episode 12. But anyway, <laughs> uh, Brian, real quick, well, your I was thoughts gonna say on that, all this stuff. I was just going to say that's why we do not record these these things live uh, so that Bill can, es <laughs> can escape uh, and, and get his work done by, uh, by the uh, runoff. That's, but, that's the goal. We, well, well, I think it's interesting because this brings in for a lot of our listeners who might be uh, somewhat novices to polling and all those type of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's it's important uh, to look at the source of the polls. Uh, many times, what what I think uh, you know the reason we have you on here to talk about it is because you are an independent pollster. Uh, your your source, uh, those that pay for your poll, are media media outlets that just want to uh, educate the public. Trade correct? associations and interest groups. And the and uh, in in the in the case that you're talking about, this is a poll that comes from an individual candidate's campaign. Correct. And so you know you have to be skeptical, and people in this. Business business get used to looking at the details of the poll because you don't want to be misled and it, it behooves people to try to energize their campaign or you know if there's a motive clearly that's what it is and yeah. so uh, I think that's why it's uh, deceptive it's, it's deceptive to put out a poll and not release the supporting documentation that's just the minimum disclosure requirements well I, I would argue that you said the Tulsa world published the the numbers from well, their poll, right? Well, they mentioned they them, mentioned but it. they wanted to talk more about my bet, which is really what they Oh, wanted. but they didn't write about it beforehand. No, they had never oh, written about it beforehand. they just heard about your, okay, they Correct. heard about your bet. Well, that's, I think that's good journalism ethics, that they didn't just funnel that that through. Let's take a real quick jump down the rest of this ballot. Uh, if you're a Republican, get, just start, mark your uh, alarm clock now so you can get up and study all the races you've got to deal with. Um, we're going to go through them real quick, and since we're a little late on time, I'm going to give you guys each like 15 seconds about each of these as we go through. Um, you didn't uh, poll Lieutenant Governor, I don't believe. No. Um, the Right Strategy Group, we had Ryan Tufts on here before. One of the, They had a poll, and it showed it pretty close with Dana Murphy at 29.6 and Matt Pinnell 25.4. Thoughts on Lieutenant Governor, Brian? Uh, I, I think it's interesting, uh, you know, Bill uh, will will say this, but uh, there there's, doesn't seem to be a ton of energy behind that race. And so I think that'll be fascinating to watch how that turns out. Uh, Dana Murphy seems to have more money. Uh, I think she's consistently kind of run in the lead in this race, but probably still a lot of undecided. And uh, that's one of those races that who knows, because of there's there's not a lot of energy behind it. Yeah, I think this is the year of the woman. I think we have a lot of women that are running and that they're going to be very successful on Election Day. That being said, you've got Matt Pinnell from Tulsa, and we've talked about the increase of Tulsa turnout, which may help him. 
And um, this may be the last time we ever talk about a lieutenant governor's race because on the November ballot is a measure to marry together the governor and lieutenant governor. So this may be the last race we ever talk about. So, Absolutely. Um, So let's move to uh, Attorney General Bill. I'll let you go first. This time we have incumbent Attorney General Mike Hunter, who was appointed to the position uh, facing Gintner Drummond, who's a challenger, again, has a little money. I mean, they're both uh, they both drive better cars than I do, but they um, Drummond has had more of his own money uh, put in. Although Hunter has put some of his own in, is what my understanding is. Uh, what are your what numbers do you have on that? Well, when I first polled it the first time, I had Mike Hunter at one percent, or not one percent. He was a one single digit uh, in my poll. Okay, and I did, so some people are calling him single digit Mike. Uh, uh, I, I think as a pejorative. But that being said, I think that um, he has done very, very well. He spent $300,000, was caught flat-footed when Gettner got in the race on, on, on Election Day, was running ads already. And so uh, I have him in my latest poll at 38% and Gettner at 29 with 32% undecided. I think that Mike Hunter has benefited a lot from how negative the Gettner campaign has gotten. Uh, I think they went a little over the top with their very last ad, and I think it turned a lot of people off. It certainly turned this into a runoff because Bonilla got 19% of the vote, and she didn't really campaign or have any money at all whatsoever. So that being said, um, it is now only between the two of them, and I think right now it's advantage Hunter unless uh, Drummond can continue to spend his money wisely. He's got some Repu- Hunter has some Republican Attorney General's Association and third-party ads. Uh, that way supporting him as well. Brian, thoughts on AG? Well, it, it, felt, it, it felt to me like uh, that uh, Drummond missed his opportunity to win this race in the primary. Mm-hmm. Uh, be- because of the negative aspect of this, I, I recall back in the lieutenant governor's race of Scott Pruitt versus Todd Hyatt, and Nancy Rowley was this third-party candidate that ended up getting 20% because it was so negative. It really, it really wasn't a vote for Nancy Rowley. It was, I, I'm, I'm, I'm protesting against the negativity of this campaign. Same thing here. And it felt like the same thing kind of happened here. But it felt to me like Drummond peaked a little too soon, mm-hmm. that he had an opportunity to win in the, in the primary, and the fact that polling now is sh- – first of all, I was a little surprised that Hunter ran first in the primary, pers- mm-hmm. personally, just mm-hmm. b- based upon your – like you said, your original poll had Hunter, I think, in single digits right. and had Drummond up by a decent amount. Decent amount, 20, uh, 22%, somewhere in that So, so Hunter came on strong. name ID, probably – at the time, Drummond had been on the air big time. He had, and and uh, but it was that was close to the election. So Hunter did a really good job of closing the gap, forcing this into a runoff, and it feels to me like that it's it's Hunter's race right now to lose. Uh, anything's possible, but right. I think he's done a good job. I, I will say though that we, if we look at statistics, we know that the undecideds will break at a higher proportion for the challenger and mike hunter is the incumbent in this race now it's hard to argue that because he was appointed he hasn't been on the statewide ballot for 20 years which is a lifetime in politics so that being said is he really an incumbent is he getting the power of incumbency and is also that blade hurting him because he's pushed into a runoff i will tell you when incumbents are in runoffs they only win 57 percent of the time according to the statistics let's use that as a segue to state superintendent the gop runoff between incumbent joy hoffmeister and challenger linda murphy um just a, sl- a quick plug friday august 24th 6 p.m sharp over at city presbyterian church 829 northwest 13th street uh non-doc let's fix this generation citizen nonpartisan partners uh are hosting a open 
fair debate between these two candidates. And so if you are uh, undecided or you just really want to learn more about education issues in the state of Oklahoma, come to that City Presbyterian Church again, 6 p.m. August 24th. Uh, it's going to be a good time. I'm moderating. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably can tolerate me. If you if if you if you don't like me, then I don't know why you're listening to this podcast. Um, it's to for you guys to make fun of me, right? That's that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's what the big clicks yeah. are for. Um, real quick thoughts on Hoffmeister Murphy. She's up pretty big, about twelve. Points She's in your four, poll. Four, forty-three to to thir- uh, thirty. You know, about twelve, thirteen points. You know. Uh, really, it's quite an amazing feat, uh, given the fact that she was uh, accused of a lot of things. Um, she was uh, arrested, uh, correct? I, I believe so. She had to have a mugshot. Taken, right, yeah. right. So that's that's a- right. That's right. I mean, I'm, I'm just saying is, is, and in the same time with the teacher strikes and teachers unhappy and Republicans looking like, because they're always going to look like the people standing in the, in the, in the schoolhouse door, um, whether they were or not, uh, is beside the point. That's the way the public perception uh, falls. The point is, is, is that this is a long road to hoe for her. And quite frankly, with her up 13 points, that's saying a lot about what Republican voters think about her. So, Well, and she has much better name ID, and you've got multiple Murphys on the ballot and all, and all those sorts of things. Um, I, I should say that it was the, the uh, uh, arrest and the, the, patent, the prosecution that then was dropped right. was all about uh, coordination of political efforts in her in her original election campaign and all that. It wasn't right. like she shoplifted twenty eight dollars no, worth yeah, of makeup no. from Walmart. So um, we have uh, Labor Commissioner, uh, Republican primary, uh, Kathy Costello, Leslie Osborne. Uh, now you each have five seconds. What thoughts on this? Kathy's, you know, using her her last name very effectively. Uh, you know, Mary Fallon probably should have appointed her in the first place. Uh, she's run on a, 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 a platform that has really nothing to do with labor and more to do with mental health issues. But needless to say, in Oklahomans, we like voting for everybody or we don't want anyone appointed. And so there, I think that that's why, why she's going to come out on top. And I think uh, that with these two candidates, uh, Leslie Osborne would be considered the more moderate of the two candidates, which typically uh, the more conservative uh, one benefits in a runoff. And then uh, last statewide that we're going to talk about here, we've also got state auditor, Cindy Bird, Charlie Prater. Uh, Bird is is somewhat more of the incumbent, quote-unquote, works for Gary Jones. I don't think 80% of the public could pick them out of a lineup of four people. Um, So, but... More interesting to me, anyway, Corporation Commission, uh, we've got Democrat statewide runoff between Ashley Nicole McRae and Blake Cummings. Uh, Ms. McRae finished much higher, almost won outright in, in that. And then uh, the Republican side, you have uh, 30-year incumbent Bob Anthony seeking his final term owing to term limits uh, versus Brian Beeman, former leader of the state Senate. Uh, thoughts on that, guys? Go ahead, Brian. Uh, I think that, you know, Bob Anthony, a lot of people have taken a shot at Bob Anthony over the years, uh, and um, he he uh, always seems to prevail. Uh, he, he seems to be leading in the polls right now, and I think that uh, Bingman uh, has probably a, a tough hill to climb uh, overcoming that. Yeah, I mean, um, if, if the power of incumbency is probably the most powerful in the Corporation Commission because they are able, during certain times of the year, to raise money from those that they regulate. And so it's very hard to beat an incumbent for Corporation Commissioner. That being said, there's not a lot that Bingman can point to to say, 
this is the reason why Anthony needs to be thrown out. So his what is his campaign? It's all about his last name. Yeah, and 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 that's and so hoping people are tired of an incumbent in general. Well, I, I think one little interesting side note to to this race is that. Uh, we talked about the lieutenant governor's race, which Dana Murphy is a sitting corporation commissioner. If she were to win that race, then you potentially have a vacancy at the corporation commission level. So there is some thought that if a Brian Bingman, for instance, would be the front runner, would potentially be a front runner for something. Yeah, yeah. Like but let's also keep in mind, too, that corporation commissioner has never been a dropping off or higher office, right. uh, a, a, a jumping off point. I mean, uh, the last one to really do it was J.C. Watts, uh, and I'm not even sure Congress is a higher office than being a corporation commissioner in the state of Oklahoma. Yeah, a uh, quick plug on that as well. Tuesday, August 21st, uh, at the same place, City Presbyterian Church, uh, starting at 5.30, we've got both Democrat candidates uh, doing a debate. Uh, I'll be moderating that with Aaron Brilbeck and Claire Donnelly of News 9 and KGOU, respectively, asking questions. Uh, both Democrats are committed to being there. And then we're going to follow that up with a Republican uh, portion of the night, and at this point, uh, Commissioner Anthony has declined to participate. Um, he, he has some things going on, uh, but we certainly hope that if he's in town, he will uh, choose to attend. A lot of people really would like to hear from him. Mr. Bingman will be there, and uh, if, if Commissioner Anthony doesn't choose to attend, we'll give Mr. Bingman a little bit of time to talk and answer a couple questions and, and go from there. We're just trying to have positive public debates and have people in front of the public to answer some questions, and so certainly hope that everybody uh, uh, attends that. Um, that kind of takes me to where I wanted to get to on the statewide stuff. I'd like to talk legislature real quick. I know we've been going longer on these podcasts. Every time we start, we say we're going to go shorter. Um, lots on the table in terms of the makeup of the legislature, uh, specifically among Republicans. Um, you have, it, which, which is an interesting thing to say, right? But you have two branches of the Republican Party really fighting themselves uh, in, in this runoff. You have the Hardline, no tax. Uh, you know, didn't want to support the the um, you know the the pay raise bill uh, or the revenue to fund it. Uh, who are being challenged by some folks, uh, and then you have uh, some of those uh, you know taxpayers unite type folks who are challenging some sitting incumbents who did vote for the pay raise bill, uh, and then you have some open seats as well. So any any races that you're watching, Brian, in particular? Well, I think just in a general sense, you know, we're watching all of these races. Uh, and I don't have any uh, insight necessarily on exactly how they're going to turn out. But I think what is interesting is, is that we just came out of a very contentious legislative environment in which we had a teacher walk out, shut the Capitol down for um, a couple of weeks. And the fight that kind of took place at the legislature is whether or not that we needed to raise taxes in order to fund education. And I think these runoffs, uh, in many respects, are a result of that effort. And we have many of the, the candidates that are finding themselves in a runoff were those that voted against the funding package for education, which is interesting because here we, here we are, you know, many times we talk about tax increases or something that Republicans cannot do and especially can't get away with in a, in a uh, uh, runoff election. But I think Bill has a pretty decent insight as to the Republican voter and as it right. relates to tax increases. Yeah, let yeah. me just say real quick, we have uh, almost 30 Republican seats. There's five um, Senate districts and that, or, I'm sorry, four Senate districts uh, that are uh, in a runoff. Um, 
I think all of them were open Senate districts, but they're all in runoffs in Republicans. And then Republicans have 22, I believe it is, House districts that are in runoffs. Many of them open, but many of them uh, right. sitting. Out of that, we've identified 10 that we are kind of keeping our eye on because these are the 10 of the Republican House members who did vote against the, the teacher pay raise funding mechanism and are running for re-election. Uh, of those 10, we saw in the primary one won outright, uh, Tom Gann. Two lost that night, uh, which was uh, Scott McEachin and Chuck Strom. And Chuck Strom. And then so we've got seven left that are in runoffs. I will tell you, none of those incumbents really want to be in runoffs. Like I said earlier, the stats show that incumbents win runoffs only 57% of the time, maybe a majority, but that's still probably cutting it too close for most, uh, uh, most incumbents. Uh, you know, um, they benefited in the primary with multiple candidates because typically uh, they can still get to a majority and everybody else uh, divides the opposition vote. But in a runoff, it's a different story. So it, it, uh, we want to see how those seven turned out. But I just want to finish what I'm saying by also pointing out that when we voted on the step up plan, which included a teacher pay raise back in February, 72 percent of House Republicans voted for it and only 36 percent of Democrats. And isn't it interesting that when we get down to, when we finally have a strike, we finally get a funding mechanism, we finally get teachers pay raise, that all of the focus is on the Republicans that didn't vote for it instead of all of the Democrats. And I think that that needs to be thought because naturally Democrats uh, benefit from education being one of their basket issues that they seem to be very strong on in the minds of voters. And so Republicans should have seen this coming. They knew that they were weak on education uh, with the voter. They should have been more stronger about it. Um, I, I still feel like that that's lost in the argument. I only want to bring that up because I think it's an important fact. Well, but most of the people who voted no on 1010XX, which came after Step Up, also voted no on Step Up and also voted no on Plan A Plus and also voted no. They've, they've been sort of more of a, um, you know, pretty uh, – uh, what am I trying to say? Bryce, you're going to have to edit this. Consistent. They've been consistent uh, in, in their positioning, right. but I think there are people who are, are tired of that. People forget that uh, the majority of teachers in the state of Oklahoma are registered Republicans. That's and right. so that's an interesting constituency in a primary or a runoff uh, situation. Additionally— And I just want to say, and then if you'll look back, though, I wrote an editorial that ran in the Daily Oklahoma and the Tulsa World which I talked about how these far-right Republicans do not understand the concept of the voters' vision of what being a conservative is. And so while they look in their minds like, oh, my gosh, I never saw myself ever voting for a, a tax cut, or I'm sorry, a tax increase, the thought was is that once you fund that, they could have easily then gotten to May – now with the increased revenues, they don't need the additional taxes, voted for a tax cut, and that have been tax cutters going into the election. But this is one of the problems with the DNA of Republicans. They literally cannot govern. It shuts down their ability to govern because it might include a tax increase. And Democrats are also, they're, they're, they're DNA wounded as well, but the point is for different reasons. But the point is, is that's where we found ourselves, and that's the reason why it turned the way it did. I think you've also got to look at a couple specific races, people who may be in jeopardy. Um, you've got uh, uh, Jeff Cootie down in Grandfield area against Trey Caldwell, uh, Bobby Cleveland, House District 20 against Sherry Connolly, uh, George Fott against Chris Sneed. Um, Mike Ritz, uh, Stan May, Tess Teague, 
against uh, Robert Manger, with the exception of George Fox. Travis Dunlap in Bartlesville. And Travis Dunlap, Bartlesville against Jed Strom. Uh, Dunlap angered some people about the adoption bill, but he seems like a, a nice guy. Uh, but fought very nice guy. So with the exception of him, you you have some interesting personalities in that list. You have Cootie, who uh, made some disparaging remarks that were captured on camera by some teenagers that he was talking to in his from his district, uh, talking about uh, made some disparaging remarks toward teachers. Um, you have Tess Teague, who angered. Uh, the head of the Aeronautics Commission, the director of the Aeronautics Commission, for taking a quote of his um, out of context in his mind. Um, you have Mike Ritz, who caught a bunch of uh, flack for, uh, you know, misrepresenting his uh, status in a, in a veterans, uh, disabled veterans organization, um, and he's been hammered on that. You have Sean Roberts, who's uh, made some people mad for, you know, basically playing video games in the Capitol. Um, like I, I feel like I'm breaking that news, but I mean it's it, I've been told multiple by multiple people that that's a thing. You should probably add Senator Yin, who lost in the primary, and he had very much angered the anti-vaccination uh-huh. folks, and and as well as marijuana folks. Um, and then of course you have Bobby Cleveland, who is I mean it, I like not a day goes by where somebody's not sending me screenshots of somebody on social media ranting about how Bobby Cleveland was rude to them. Um, no, I mean no offense to Bobby, uh, he would tell you that he's a blunt guy. Um, but you, so you have, I think it's not just the way they voted in that regard. I think it's the way that you are uh, received. And I think they're the way you carry yourself. And I think that um, when I hear people talking, sure, some of them talk about votes people cast, but some of them, but as, as many, if not more, talk to me about how uh, they were interacted with with their lawmaker, and I think that's a really interesting situation. And, and just so you know, you mentioned Scott McEachin. He probably lost because of the famous picture that the Tulsa World took, or the AP, mind you, of him with teachers in front of him, and he's looking at his watch. I don't know if you saw that. I picture. didn't see that. No. Yeah. no, I hadn't. I had not seen that. There's there's some other runoffs as well. I think we're about done for the day. Democrats have, uh, if I can count real quick, seven runoffs. Uh, no, except that, um, unfortunately, with the passing of, of Representative Claudia Griffith, uh, SD-16 is, is then essentially decided, uh, assuming people vote for Mary Bourne. So they have six House District runoffs. Um, we had a, a story from our, our intern, Ben White, did a great job the other day. I don't know if you guys saw it. HD-99, which is East Oklahoma City, part of that. Um, A.J. Pittman versus in Kim House. Uh, what did you guys think of that story? Uh, if, if you didn't read it yet, basically uh, we asked her about uh, records that showed that she was arrested for shoplifting, and she said that it might be uh, she floated many different theories as to what might have happened, uh, as opposed to her signing the ticket and uh, pleading no contest and paying six hundred and some dollars uh, to the court system. So, what were you guys' thoughts there? So it was kind of a non-denial denial. Uh, then you had to get into uh, analyzing signatures, and uh, so you did you did a lot of uh, investigative reporting there. I, I like to I like comparing the signatures and doing all those type of things. But I, I, I'm not sure, uh, you know, that district uh, whether or not that's something that they'll they'll be held accountable in that district or not. I really don't uh, because I think that district could view a story like that as, you know, uh, outsider hatchet job and, and, and some of that type of stuff. Uh, so I, it, I, it's a majority African-American district and we know African-Americans typically vote for legacies, for families of, of, of children, cousins, people of the same last name. 
they're very loyal to family legacies, um, much more so than than the white population is when they vote. We've got those kinds of stories all over the, the nation of, of, of that. And so that's what I think you're referring to is, is that it may not make a difference because her last name is Pittman and that right. name is very well known because right. of uh, Anastasia because Pittman. Of her, her mother, who, right. is, who is the Democratic nominee for lieutenant governor. So it'll be interesting to watch. Um, I, I just candidly, you know, speaking with some people who, um, you know, who had alerted me uh, to, to the situation that we even asked about it. And frankly, we asked, this, this is a good tip for politicians, right? Like if you're asked about a tiny little charge of something from a couple of years ago, um, if you just say, yeah, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I made a mistake, blah, blah, blah. It's probably like graph number 15 or 20 in the story. If you go into some elaborate story that doesn't make any sense about what might've happened, uh, you know, then it becomes the, main part of the story but anyway well, and and i just want to tip my hat to non-doc because you're doing the kind of reporting that i think goes overlooked as we've seen a, a a drop in journalism particularly among print journalism and you're really filling the hole you're filling the gap and really we should all tip our hat to you and, and the work you're doing i appreciate Absolutely. it maybe maybe one of these episodes will have been on and i can i can uh, uh make fun of him for the story he called me after he did that interview and he was like i uh I think she might be lying. <laughs> he was like, what do we do now? <laughs> so, uh, you know, we're t we appreciate the Gaylord College for making that internship possible and uh, young journalists learning a lot on the way. And, um, you know, seriously, a lot, lot of candidates out there. We try to talk a little freely on this podcast, but we always want to try to be fair and give everybody an opportunity to talk. Final thoughts, guys. Um, Bill, Brian, what do you want to say to close things out? Uh, I, I'm just going to try to put Bill on the spot. Bill, uh, who's who? As you sit here today, who's the next governor of Oklahoma? With five thousand dollars on the line, Golly gee. <laughs> well, I think it's better to say who will win the Republican runoff. Uh, I think that Kevin Stitt has the advantage. I, I still feel like that Mick uh, Cornett can be dangerous because he showed a real uh, uh, ability to woo rural voters in and around Oklahoma City. Can he do that statewide? We're going to find out. Uh, as far as looking to November, I think it's going to be one of the most exciting races that we've had in some long time, simply because the Republicans have done so well since the wave of 2010. And so uh, I, I have all hopes that we'll really see a real debate over who can run this state. And is it Republicans or it's Democrats? And that's what the really the, the, the election will come down to. If you if you're if you're Drew Edmondson, you know I know the polling has showed that maybe right now he's performing better against Stitt. But do you want to run against this outsider uh, with lots of money, or would you rather run against a, a Mayor Cornette? Yeah, I'd, I'd if I was him, I'd want to run against Mayor Cornette, but or a former Mayor Cornette. But I would say that um, my, if I was Drew Edmondson, my middle name would be Education between now and the end of the year because that's a winning issue for Democrats. It's a huge issue in this in this state right now, given everything that's happened. And um, that's that could actually carry him into the governor's office. Great. Well, my parting thought is Tuesday, August 21st. I just threw my notepad on the ground by accident. Uh, Tuesday, August 21st, come to City Presbyterian Church for the Corporation Commission night. Uh, Friday, August 24th, same thing with State Superintendent. Uh, debate, and we'll uh, do our best to get information out to folks. Rate us, review us, subscribe to us, share us with your friends, 
Um, if you can come up with a better name than Bullstit for one of the candidates, let us know. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. Thanks until next time. This is how we got here. How We Got Here is a presentation of FKG Consulting in association with Nondoc.com, produced and edited by Bryce Holland. For more information, visit fkgconsulting.com and nondoc.com.